You can't see them, taste them, feel them, or smell them. Over the past 50 years, tiny amounts of man-made chemicals have contaminated our entire world. They're in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, and the products we buy. Measured in parts per billion, or even parts per trillion, they interfere with the extremely delicate balance of chemicals in our own bodies that determine how we grow, how we mature, and how, and even if, we reproduce. It's getting harder and harder to conceive. Sperm rates have declined over 50%. Birth rates have dropped to record lows. This is the result of playing around with chemicals when we don't really know what we're doing. This is what environmental irresponsibility looks like. And this is Green Street. Welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, public health and medical professionals, authors, engineers, activists, reporters, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what's really going on around you, how it affects your health and safety, and how you can protect yourself and your family in this increasingly toxic world. On our show today, we're going to talk about how chemicals in our environment are impacting sex, specifically our ability to reproduce and grow normally. It turns out that chemicals found in millions of consumer products, chemicals that make plastic soft or hard or make fabric waterproof or saucepans non-stick, also have other amazing properties we are just learning about. Dr. Shanna Swan is leading the race to discover more about how these chemicals are doing their dirty work and how we can prevent them from literally bringing a halt to our ability to reproduce as a species. It's an interview you won't want to miss, and it's coming right up after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? As always, I have lots to choose from when it comes to environmental health news. Um, the first one is from uh, Environmental Health News, uh, written by Gwen Raniger, and it is entitled Plastic Pollution in the Ocean. Plastics make up 80% of all marine debris, from what's floating on the surface to deep sea sediments. The amount of plastic ending up in our oceans is sobering. By 2050, there is expected to be more plastic pollution than fish by weight in the oceans. Plastic debris ends up in the ocean in a variety of ways, making the quest to stop plastic pollution much more difficult. Some of these paths to the water include plastic bags, takeout containers, packaging, which are swept down storm drains into local waterways, working down rivers and into the oceans. Plastic products, including litter, but also fishing nets, lost or thrown overboard at sea. This is not the main culprit, however. More than 80% of plastic ending up in the ocean comes from land-based activities. Illegal dumping or poor waste management of trash on beaches around the globe. Microplastics from cosmetic and hygiene products or clothing in our washing machines going down the drain. Industrial byproducts from improperly conducted or managed production processes. You may have heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a collection of large and small plastic debris that has accumulated in the Pacific Ocean, corralled by ocean currents and currently covering at least 1.6 million kilometers of the ocean surface. The patch is overwhelming due to discarded plastics from countries around the Pacific Rim and is a stark visual reminder of the massive problem. It isn't the only one either. There are plastic patches growing in every one of our oceans. 
Additional impacts of ocean plastic pollution include death of marine life. Many marine animals, such as turtles and dolphins, mistake plastic fragments for food. Ingesting plastic is often fatal to animals as the plastic blocks their digestive tracts and causes them to starve. Many seabirds, seals, turtles, and whales also get entangled in plastic matter and suffocate, drown, or become easy prey for predators. Once plastics enter the sea, sun, wind, and wave activity break them down into smaller and smaller fragments. These fragments, called microplastics, have been found in all corners of the globe, from within the Arctic sea ice to the slopes of Mount Everest. Microplastics are swept up in the water cycle, returning to land via precipitation and impacting soil quality. Microplastics are also ingested by wildlife, impacting not only their biological systems, but also contaminating our food supply. The health impacts of ingesting microplastics are still relatively unknown. However, they are chemically active materials and can bind to other compounds that can harm human health. Once in the ocean, it's extremely difficult to retrieve plastics. Efforts are underway. The Ocean Cleanup is an organization working to develop new technologies that make ocean plastics cleanup possible, with a goal to eliminate 90% of ocean plastic waste. However, once the debris breaks down into microplastics, recovery is virtually impossible. The most impactful solution is to stop plastic waste from entering our oceans in the first place. This is easier said than done and has a lot more to do with national and corporate practices than an individual. Improved waste management systems, recycling processes, and the reduction of single-use plastics will play a significant role in pollution reduction. As an individual, however, you can do your part to make a difference. Avoid single-use plastics. Use reusable shopping bags, takeout containers, travel mugs, and straws. Limit your purchasing of plastic products. Most things plastic come in more natural materials. Glass food storage containers instead of plastic. Bulk foods and toiletries instead of smaller-sized, heavily packaged products. Wear clothing made from natural materials such as cotton, linen, or wool. Many microplastics that enter the ocean come from our clothing. Clothing made with synthetic materials like polyester and nylon shed microparticles in the wash that then enter our water systems. There are now products available to catch microfibers that are shed from your clothing. Do some research on microfiber filters and find a product that fits your lifestyle. Clean up around your community. Grab a bag and collect litter from the side of the road, parks, fields, sidewalks, and more. Collecting plastic before it finds its way into a gutter or a body of water is an easy way to help mitigate the pollution. Petition for change. If this matters to you, and it should, let others know. Find like-minded people in your community. Speak to local legislators and or call your senators and representatives. I just can't talk enough about plastics, single-use plastics, microplastics. It is a huge, huge problem. 1.6 million square kilometers of the ocean is a garbage patch just made up of plastic. Right, because it floats. And that's never going away. We're there already. That's always going to be there. You know, even if if you were able to somehow stop all single-use plastic today... That garbage you know, patch it, is there. It, it, years ago, it used to be just be a litter problem. People mm, didn't like right. it because it was unsightly. Right. It's it's way bigger than that now. Sure. I mean, the thing that bothers me the most is the chemicals, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, not only are there chemicals that are used to make the plastic, which are endocrine disruptors and so on, but also these pieces of plastic are like magnets 
when they get into the oceans. And the oceans already have a lot of chemical pollution in them, like, you know, PCBs, things that are forever chemicals, that the plastic attracts and holds so that not only, you know, are these animals that are ingesting these plastics getting the plastic itself, which is problematic, but they're also getting the chemicals that the plastic is made from and the chemicals that the plastics have attracted yeah. from, you know, from bodies uh, of water that contain high pollutants. So, okay. anyway. Interesting. All right. Yeah. What, what else you got? Okay. The second one is also from Environmental Health News, and it is written by Elizabeth Gribkoff. And the title is, We're Miscalculating the Cancer Risk from a Massive Class of Chemicals. And this was from an MIT study. Around the world, regulators have long relied on one compound to assess a community's lung cancer risk from a class of chemicals that we're exposed to while grilling our burgers wading in traffic and breathing in wood smoke from a fire. That compound, benzopyrene, a polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon, or PAH, however, only accounts for 11% of lung cancer risk associated with PAHs, MIT researchers found in a study. 17% of the PAH-linked cancer risk in the study came from the largely unregulated and understudied breakdown products. People can be exposed to PAHs in a variety of ways, from smoking to eating grilled food to breathing in tailpipe or wildfire emissions. Workers in coal plants or those who use coal products are considered especially at risk. When people inhale PAH particles, the particles can travel deep into the lungs, causing cell mutations that can lead to lung cancer. Scientists are also concerned about exposure to PAHs through food and drinking water, as ingestion has been linked to birth defects and a higher prevalence of developing breast, pancreatic, and colon cancers. Experts say this study provides further evidence that both regulators and scientists need to factor in a broader range of PAH compounds when assessing a community's cancer risks. In the 1970s, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, identified 16 of the more than 10,000 PAH compounds as pollutants of concern. And since then, that group of chemicals has been widely monitored around the world. One of those, benzopyrene, is still used as the toxicity benchmark for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in epidemiological studies, in large part because it's the best studied PAH. But in recent years, researchers have been questioning whether that narrow focus makes sense. In particular, researchers have been challenging the assumption that once PAH compounds break down in the atmosphere, they're no longer carcinogenic. It turns out that some of the products that they can react to are even more toxic than what's been initially emitted. You know, we talk over and over and over again about classes of chemicals. And here's a class of chemicals. These are PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. How many are there? 10,000 PAH compounds that were pollutants of concern. So what they're saying is that we're using benzopyrene as the kind of the benchmark, right? This is correct. whatever that level is, that's the level of cancer risk. And this study is showing, no, 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 no. These things break down into things, into compounds that can be even more hazardous. This is, and this is, not, this is not unusual. Yeah. This happens over and over and over again. The lung and breast cancer study which was done, you know, decades ago, basically found that that the only positive association between an exposure and a higher breast cancer risk was with PAHs, 
polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, exactly from, you know, what they're saying here, from, you know, grilling foods and from Motor vehicular traffic, yeah. you know, right, from vehicular traffic and, and, uh, and smoking cigarettes, right? Now they've added wildfires to that because that's sure. much more common uh, today than it ever was before. I mean, people from other states are breathing in the smoke from wildfires that are that are burning in California. I mean, they're yeah. so big and they last so long. Okay, what else you got? Okay, the last one is um, it's kind of political, and you know, it's a it's about Good. the fossil fuel industry, uh-huh. and it's okay. a, it's an important one. It was uh, originally printed in the New York Times. Um, Hiroko Tabuchi was the author. It says, in your Facebook feed, oil industry pushback against Biden climate plans. The ads appear on Facebook millions of times a week. They take aim at vulnerable Democrats in Congress by name, warning that the $3.5 trillion budget bill, one of the Biden administration's biggest efforts to pass meaningful climate policy, will wreck the United States economy. The paid posts are part of a broad attack by the oil and gas industry against the budget bill, whose fate now hangs in the balance. Among the climate provisions that are likely to be left out of the plan is an effort to dismantle billions of dollars in fossil fuel tax breaks, provisions that experts say incentivize the burning of fossil fuels responsible for catastrophic climate change. Details have emerged of an agreement between Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, the majority leader, and Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a Democrat with huge sway in the divided Senate, who has said he doesn't support such an expansive bill. According to a memo outlining the agreement first obtained by Politico, Mr. Manchin said that if the legislation were to include extensions of smaller tax credits for wind and solar power, it shouldn't undo tax breaks for fossil fuel producers. The American Petroleum Institute, the oil and gas industry's biggest trade group, has been central to efforts to push for continued tax breaks for oil and gas. It is using a front group called Energy Citizens that API, American Petroleum Institute, also used a decade ago to successfully thwart a cap-and-trade plan that would have set a ceiling on emissions of planet-warming greenhouse gases while letting companies buy and sell special permits to stay under that ceiling. In the first six months of this year, API spent more than $2 million directly lobbying Congress on issues including taxes, according to federal disclosures. API, whose members include ExxonMobil, Chevron, and BP, has also run a seven-figure TV campaign opposing various measures in the reconciliation package. And on Facebook, API has spent almost half a million dollars to run hundreds of ads attacking the bill since August 11th. API's average daily spending on Facebook ads attacking the budget has surpassed the group's previous peak spending, set after then-presidential candidate Joe Biden announced his climate plans in July of 2020. API ads laud Senator Manchin, meanwhile, for his opposition to the plan. Senator Manchin has received more campaign donations from the oil, coal, and gas industries than any other senator. Environmental groups are countering with their own spending on ads. League of Conservation Voters and Climate Power, for example, said they spent $3.2 million on digital ads since August, including ads against Republicans in Congress. It's time to tune out API's self-serving campaigns against climate action and focus on getting the Build Back Better Act over the finish line before our window to acts closes, said Lori Lodes, executive director of Climate Power. The industry lobby group in recent months said that it supports strong action on climate, including putting a price on carbon pollution. Both API and Exxon are the target of an investigation by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform on their past efforts to block climate policy. 
Furthermore, the burning of fossil fuels has driven climate change, a link highlighted in a landmark scientific report released by the United Nations this year. In a separate report, the International Energy Agency said that nations around the world need to immediately stop approving new oil and gas fields if they want to avert the most catastrophic effects of climate change. So that's the way the game is played in Washington. It's, right. you know, pay enough money and you can get legislators to do what you want. Yeah, but this is, <laughs> this is, this is a little bit different this time. We're talking about an existential yes, we issue are. here yeah. with climate change. And the oil and gas industry, you know, they're not going to give up easily. They are not going to give up easily. And some legislators in Washington are going to enable them to keep doing this, to keep extracting and burning fossil fuels, even with all of the evidence, I mean, in our face. Money talks, Patty. That's the way it works. Well. All right. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. The human body's endocrine system is a miracle of chemistry. It's a complex system of glands throughout the body that secrete tiny amounts of hormones at very specific times to control how we grow and function. No one really completely understands how it works, but we know enough to know that it's delicate and finely calibrated, and when it goes out of whack, bad things can happen. Among other things, the endocrine system plays a large role in our sexual development and in reproduction. An imbalance of hormones at critical times in development can throw the whole system off, making reproduction virtually impossible. Over the past hundred years, scientists working with chemicals in their laboratories have found that certain combinations of chemicals can do wondrous things, like make clothing water repellent, or sofas stain resistant, or frying pans easy to clean. But the chemical signature of these new chemical combinations can also mimic that of our own hormones, causing confusion within our bodies as normal processes are interrupted by the presence of these man-made chemicals which we get from chemical residues in food, air, water, and consumer products. Dr. Shanna Swan began her young life as a child actress, then decided instead to pursue a career in mathematics. She earned her master's in biostatistics and then her PhD in statistics and logic. Today, Dr. Shanna Swan is one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists and a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Her new book, Countdown, chronicles how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development and imperiling the future of the human race. Patty and I spoke with Dr. Swan last week and I asked her if left unchecked, these endocrine disrupting chemicals can literally spell the end of the human race. That's a question that everyone raises and a question that I, of course, can't answer because I can't predict the future. Um, but I can say that right now it's more difficult to reproduce. And we see that in many, many ways with declines in the total fertility rate, which of course has other causes. And we also see that in the increase in use of assisted reproduction. We see that in the increase of use of testosterone supplementation by younger and younger men. We see that by women having more miscarriages and having fewer eggs left at the end of their reproductive cycle. So there's many things that support the concern that we may be making it harder and harder to reproduce. However, 
we do have some incredible technology coming to our rescue here, which is the assisted reproductive technologies, which, as I said, are being used more and more frequently by younger and younger people. And I, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to rely on those technologies more and more. As more men are banking their sperm, women are freezing their eggs and sort of laying in the supplies for, for when the cold winter comes in, if you will. Um, they're looking ahead and doing these things, which I think is a good idea, actually, um, because if we're going to change this in any other way than just banking everything and relying on it when we need it, we're going to have to clean up the environment and do something about, you know, these things that are driving down our fertility and our sperm count. So I, I guess you went back to your days of being a mathematician and statistician and projected, you know, that in 2045, that sperm counts will be zero. No, no, that was somebody else that did that. Ah, okay. And so it's important that we talk about that because you could extend the line down to zero. Certainly anybody can do that. Just take a ruler, draw it down, see where it hits the line, right? But does that make sense? And so we have to think about what is the curve? The curve is the mean sperm count. So what is that? What does the mean mean? It's, it's the center of the distribution. Not quite because there's more on the lower end than at the upper end. So you see this you know, off kilter, what we call skewed distribution with a long tail out to the right. But aside from that, we're really looking at you know, the center, more or less, of the distribution. The, the, you know, it's not really the center, but um, the median is actually the center, but it's close. So, so we've plotted this decline of the average, right? And so if the average were zero, what would that mean? It would mean that something close to half of men would have a count below zero, Think about a bell-shaped curve. Well, it's not quite bell-shaped, it's a little bit skewed. But think about a bell-shaped curve with its center at zero and all the sperm there, you know, a lot of them would be negative. Well, that's not possible. There isn't a negative sperm count, right? Right. Right. So what has to happen, and this is true of all biological trends, there is some point below which, or above which, if you go the other way, it's not possible to go. And that point for sperm count is zero. So what you can do is you can come closer and closer, but never touch it until the now it, mathematician is talking till infinity, right? So exactly. you can think of this curve, it's going to have to slow down and then it can come closer and closer and closer, or it can turn around and go up again which is what we're all hoping for. Exactly. So, you know what, let's just talk about the causes of this, um, this decline in sperm count and decline in fertility in both men and women, and also other problems that, that we're seeing because of these endocrine disrupting chemicals in our environment. I know that you talk about genetics as being one of the potential causes and also the environment. And, you know, a former head of NIEHS once said that the genetics loads the gun and that the environment pulls the trigger. Do you also believe this? I think that's a great phrase. Um, I don't believe that genetics is playing a major role in this decline we're seeing. And the reason is it's too fast. It's 50% in 50 years. Just I want to stress that because... 1% per year doesn't sound like much. 1%, who cares? 
If you think about 1% per year over 50 years, that's cutting sperm count in half, which is what we saw. It went from 99 in 1973 to 47 in 2011, right? That's 39 years, a drop of 52%, more than 1% per year. If it was, if it was your BMI and it increased 1% per year, then in 50 years, everybody would have a doubled BMI. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. a huge wow. change and it's two generations. So this kind of change does not happen that quickly due to evolution. Right. 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 It, that's not to say that the environmental influences might not play out differently depending on your, your genetics. Mm -hmm. That's gene environment interaction. Okay. I'm not dismissing that at all. But I'm just saying there has to be an appreciable role of the environment to explain this. But environment doesn't mean just chemicals. So let's just be clear about that. Your environment is very broad. It has to do with your lifestyle, for one thing, um, your stress level, your BMI, your um, smoking, alcohol, and on and on and on. Some of these might be affected themselves by endocrine disruptors and probably are, but there are also things that are not and and these might be having to do with matters of choice or uh, and so on but leaving those aside and although in the book we do talk about those quite a bit there you have the chemicals now among the chemicals let's just also be clear that it's not just endocrine disrupting chemicals can that can be active here um, for example lead is known to decrease sperm count but the chemicals that i was most concerned about are the chemicals that can affect our body's hormones, particularly the sex steroids, because I'm talking about reproduction. So my particular area of concern is the chemicals that can affect our body's hormones, the so-called endocrine disrupting chemicals that I went to study with that committee back in 1994. They're raising their head here as important causes of this decline, but not the only cause. Okay. So let's talk about what some of those chemicals are and, mm -hmm. and how widespread or ubiquitous they are in our everyday lives. So we don't even know all the environmental, all the endocrine disruptors in the environment. I mean, the number is staggering and it's increasing all the time. We just starting to explore, for example, endocrine disrupting effects of medications, you know, so, but, but the mm. classical ones, which were first examined by that committee and earlier, for example, in, in Silent Spring, these are, we can classify, I think, in, in the following ways. So there's the plasticizers, and those are the phthalates, which is actually where I spent most of my time working, the, the bisphenols, and by the way, the phthalates are the chemicals that make plastic soft, just roughly speaking, and those in uh, the bisphenols make it hard. So that's one way to distinguish them. And then we have the chemicals that we are all familiar with and were perhaps the first recognized was the pesticides. And these are still with us and obviously still, you know, very endocrine active. <clears throat> and then there are what's coming more and more attention to this group, which is the PFAS. So the, the, the PFAS chemicals are um, the chemicals that I like to think of as barriers, particularly um, in Teflon, for example, they're nonstick coatings, they're in coatings on our clothing, which is flame retardants, they're coatings on paper, they're 
for example, pizza boxes that are, you know, they're lined so that oil doesn't go through and so on and so forth. So these are just everywhere. All of these chemicals are everywhere. And I should also mention flame retardants, which are very, very important endocrine disruptors and ubiquitous as well. So if you look at this, these five, you know, groups of chemicals, you're coming into contact with these every day and they're unavoidable. And here's kicker, we don't know when we're exposed. There, most of them are not labeled and most of them are not regulated. And I like to think of this as some giant dystopian experiment that's in which we are the subjects. And we haven't been asked about this, but we're, we're, they're being tested on us. And only when there's a signal that there's been harm uh, that we start to pay attention to a particular chemical or class of chemicals. Otherwise, they just go along doing their business, uh, which is disrupting our hormones uh, in the background um, all the time uh, without our knowledge. So we do have some organizations that are working on this, like the Green Policy Institute out in California. Um, Arlene Blum's. Arlene Blum's, you know, her, her organization, which is trying to group these chemicals and trying to get rid of them as a class of chemicals. Because I think just in the, in just, you know, one group of chemicals like the PFAS chemicals, there's over 9,000 of those of chemicals within that group. How do you, possibly get your arms around that and try to avoid them. It's just, like you say, this is a giant dystopian experiment that's going on. I mean, you know, and, and if you are concerned about this and you're a parent and you've got young children who play on, you know, the floor on the carpeting and who, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, on sofas that have this, uh, this chemical in the fabric, you know, that has been, it's been treated with this chemical to avoid stains or, or water. And then the child touches it and then has a snack and puts that small amount of that chemical that might be on their hands into their bodies. And, and, and if you could just talk about that and then just go into this whole idea that, that we are no longer looking at the dose makes the poison, uh, that these chemicals in very, very small doses can have really harmful effects. So there's no question that we're exposed to thousands of these chemicals. And, 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 and just to say that the Centers for Disease Control measures these in people's bodies and has shown, usually they measure over 100 in each of their studies and shown pretty much close to 100% exposure of everybody to all of these. So the question of how to avoid them, let's leave that aside for a minute. They are, as you said, coming in our every aspect of our daily lives, our furniture, our food is a really major source of these. And it's one of the things that I am most concerned about because I my focus has been on phthalates. So let me tell you a little bit about phthalates and then we'll talk about the dose makes the poison question. So phthalates are chemicals, as I said, that make plastic soft and flexible, but they're also added to personal care products because they retain scent and color. And they're also um, increase absorption. So they make that cream go into your hand. Um, and so every, that smells, everything that's fragranced is going to contain phthalates or uh, another class called phenols, which are much less studied and possibly less toxic, but certainly concerning. And the these chemicals have, the phthalates have the ability to lower 
the body's testosterone. And chemicals that can do this are called anti-androgens, because androgens mean testosterone and other similar hormones. And, and so where I focus, because my effort has been in reproduction particularly, I look at what can happen to the reproductive system when a woman, particularly a pregnant woman, is exposed to these chemicals. And the reason I look at this, the reason I got into this was because a chemist friend of mine said, Shauna, you should look at phthalates. And at the time, I didn't know what a phthalate was. And um, that was kind of a wake-up call because he told me, his name was John Brock, he told me that they were in everybody. The CDC had measured them. That was around 2000. They just learned how to measure small loads of chemicals in people's bodies for not exorbitant sums. And then he, the kicker was, he said, and in animals, they cause something called the phthalate syndrome. So this is really important because there's no other chemical that has a syndrome named after it, except alcohol. I don't know of any other. We don't talk about you know, the PFOS syndrome or the bisphenol syndrome. So it's very specific action during pregnancy. And my concern for all of these chemicals is most acute for exposure to the pregnant woman. And why is that? It's because when the fetus is developing, it's rapidly evolving, <laughs> changing. And those changes can be impacted by minute amounts of chemical. We know that from laboratory studies, in vitro studies, and human studies. And, and so just to say what they do to this developing fetus, if the developing fetus is a male, they will decrease the masculinization, that is reaching the male typical array, if you will, of size of the genitals. So here's the chain. Mother's exposed to phthalates, maybe in her food, that's most likely, maybe in her cosmetics, and goes into her body, they're water soluble, they get into the fetus, the fetus is very early in pregnancy, all these systems are developing, and the particular development of the male genitals requires a certain amount of testosterone. So if the mother's passing on something that lowers testosterone, that doesn't completely happen, and the male is less completely masculinized. And, and that consequence is enormous for many things, including our story on sperm decline, right? Because when you do that, you knock down his testosterone, his genitals are smaller, and then it also affects his brain, by the way. But the critical thing here is how does this relate to sperm count? And how it relates to sperm count is that those boys with the smaller genitals, something that I call and others call the anogenital distance, it's a measurement of how big the perineum is. That distance, if it's smaller than expected for the boy's size, will mean when he's an adult, and we've shown this in studies in adults, he'll have a lower sperm count. He'll have a lower sperm count. He'll be less likely to have a child. He'll be more likely to have testicular cancer. He'll be more likely to have genital defects. So that early hit of phthalates while he's in the womb plays out over his entire lifespan. And this is a model, if you will, for all endocrine disruption. When it's hitting the developing fetus early in pregnancy, it has effects throughout the lifespan. So when I think about who has to be protected, I say 
First and foremost, the fetus, by keeping these things out of the bodies of pregnant women, and by the way, the male as well, has to keep these things out in the 70 days before he conceives the pregnancy. That's hard. You never know when, when you're going to conceive that pregnancy, maybe, you know, you're not, if you're not particularly working hard at it. So in some sense, adult males are always at risk of impacting the development of the fetus through his exposures. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is Dr. Shanna Swan, author of the new book, Countdown, and professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. So you asked about the low dose effect. I mentioned that the developing fetus is extremely sensitive. The other thing to remember is that we're talking about chemicals that affect hormones. So we're in the area called endocrinology, which is the among other things, the study of hormones in the body. And, and the way that hormones behave in our body is not like everything else. It, for many things, it's true that when you take more of a drug or you have more of a bad thing, more is worse. But for the endocrine system, that isn't necessarily the case. And it's not necessarily the case for these chemicals as well. So what can happen is that you can have some bad effects at high doses, and you can also have bad effects due to different mechanisms at low doses. So that's just to say, we have to examine the entire range of doses, including extremely low doses that we might've dismissed earlier, recognizing now that they could also cause harm. Wow, okay, this is okay. This is really fascinating. So Shana, let me ask you this, why haven't we seen a dramatic and maybe we have, so forgive me if I'm if I'm not being correct here. But why why haven't we seen a dramatic drop in birth rates? If we have, oh my gosh, we have. Okay, we have seen the birth rates have declined at the same rate as sperm count, one percent per year. So let me give you some numbers, and this is worldwide. Worldwide, um, the world's fertility rate, which is how many children a woman can expect to have during her lifetime. That's the measure that demographers use, fertility rate. That number back in 1960 was five. So the worldwide, a woman had on average five children in her lifetime. In 2019, that number was 2.4. Now, well, 2.4, yeah. what? I was gonna say there are other factors at play here. But, oh, oh, absolutely, right? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I'm not, I'm just giving you the numbers okay. right yeah. now. The number 2.1 is especially important because that's considered replacement. So mm -hmm. if every woman had 2.1 children on the planet, the species would be in steady state. Right. Everybody would just replace right. themselves, right? Couple has two, that's a, right. So now we're seeing in Europe and the United States dropping quite a bit below two, but in East Asia, alarming numbers of even below one, below mm. one, never been seen before. So there is this dramatic decline in fertility. Now, other causes, absolutely. One of the major driving causes here, which is a positive, is women's education, women entering the workforce, availability of contraception. All of these are extremely positive forces. On the other hand, there are causes that are not voluntary, which those are, and those are the chemicals that are also driving down our sperm count and driving up our failure on the female side. And 
those forces cannot be ignored because of the presence of the forces that we recognize as positive. You see, I mean, what everybody talks about, oh, this is great, you know, women are getting educated, there, there's more urbanization, that's a big driver as well. But if a couple cannot conceive, and by the way, there are there's good evidence that now a woman of 25 who wants to get pregnant has a much lower chance that even 25 has a lower chance than, than her grandmother did. Mm-hmm. That was a Danish study that showed that. So I feel strongly that a couple has the right to reproduce if that is their choice. Choice, that choice is another question. But if a couple has that, wants to make that choice, they should be able to do that. Are we- now, let's just look at the other creatures on the planet with whom we share these exposures. They are also decreasing in fertility to the point that I think it was yesterday that just 20 more species were um, extinct. 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 Mm -hmm. So these are not, these species are not choosing to have fewer children. They are not delaying their childbearing. They are not using contraception. They are being impacted by these chemicals. Mm. Wow. Okay. Okay. So now let's talk politics. I, it's not not your field, but we got to talk politics. So, <laughs> so, so we, um, you know, we have all these chemicals in our environment, many of which we know are harming reproductive health, not only in humans but in reptiles and birds and other mammals. And the exposures are are becoming real, as we said before, really ubiquitous. Not just a an exposure to a share with a with a treated fabric on it, but it's also in our water now. You know, there are a lot of people working on how to get PFAS out of our water, how to get lead out of our water, um, you know, and these are endocrine disruptors. Uh, you know, I, I haven't read too much about flame retardants, but I'm sure flame retardants and, and BPA and, uh, and phthalates, uh, certainly pesticides are found in our, in our water supply. So how do we do this? How do we get your work and the work of your colleagues out there so that lawmakers, and of course, this is a big ask because this is kind of the things, you know, one of the things that we do, you know, can can look to our agencies that are supposed to be protecting human health, like the, uh, the FDA and the, the EPA and so on. What are we doing besides writing books, which only somebody like you can do, um, you know, about this? Are you testifying in Congress? I certainly would if I were asked, and I'm certainly talking to everybody I can. But I think that, first of all, this is going to get more visibility now as more and more people are affected. That's what happened with climate. When people didn't feel the impact, they were like, oh, no, it's not happening, or at least not here, or at least we can cause it. Until they have six feet of water in their basement, right. Exactly. Then you start to notice it, and you start (laughs) to do something. I think that's happening with this, too. I mean, the, for, I just throw out one thing. For example, I just talked to three urologists yesterday. They talked about the rapidly increasing rate of erectile dysfunction in young men. Mm. Men are going to notice this. They're going to care about this. Their partners are going to care about this. And they are. When couples can't have children, they are going to you know, open their eyes and say, what's going on here? So I think that same thing is happening, but... We're a little, you know, we're about 20 years behind in this field uh, behind climate change. So 
hopefully it's not going to take 20 years. We could don't really have 20 years. That's almost a whole generation. So, you know, things get sped up, like the vaccination was produced much faster than anyone ever thought it would. I think we can do this faster too, but we have to talk about it. And we can't just talk about it in our academic corridors. Um, we can't just talk about it at meetings and in scientific journals. No. The book is better because it's much, you know, it's mm-hmm. much broader than that, mm-hmm. but it's not. I have to talk to people like you. I, ha- I talked to Joe Rogan. I talked on The Daily Show. I talked to whoever will ask me to talk about it. Yeah. And, and thankfully, it's a big number. But here's the kicker. I think we need to get the people who are going to be most affected looking ahead 10, 15, 20 years, and that's the young people. We have to get the young people putting this on TikTok. We have to get them putting that on all the socials. We have to have them, you know, being blasting this out in a way that we haven't done so far. I think our messaging has not been effective, honestly. And I think that I'm working to change that. Um, And that's one of my goals now coming up is how do we get this message out to people who can influence the influencers and ultimately the politicians. Right. Who are all being paid by the industries that produce these chemicals. Yeah, but, I know but, it's a toughie. But consumers can also drive this, too. And I think, yes. you know, this is a very not the no pun. It's a very sexy subject. And I think, you know, it, it will it will get out. I, I have to ask, is there a way to detect an endocrine disrupting chemical? Is there any mechanism, by, you know, by which you can detect? Could we? Look- there's a whole, there's a whole committee that was set up by EPA called the EdStack Committee, that whose goal was particularly to answer that question, and um, the answer is yes and no. So there are assays. If you have a chemical, you can ask the assay, if you will, uh, is this estrogenic? Is this androgenic? Does it affect thyroid and so on? There are functional assays. Does that make sense? You can see its action. Does it interfere in an assay with something which is a known estrogen? Does it drive that down or does it ramp that up? So these specific assays can detect specific kinds of endocrine disruptors, but it's a challenge and that's chemists are working hard on this. This is one of the, you know, one of the things we have to do because what we have to do, we're not going to get rid of plastic. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. everybody wants it. It's in our environment. We use it. It's useful. We have to replace the chemicals in plastic, the chemicals in whatever we need these, these endocrine disruptors to do has to be done by something that does not affect our body's hormones. That's the kicker. Don't get rid of the function. Get rid of the particular chemical used to fill that function. Okay. So I, I have a couple of questions. So I don't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. For, finish that. No, I was just saying, I was just asking if that made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, that does make sense. I have a couple of questions. So if you had a list of priorities to eliminate some of these endocrine disrupting chemicals that are so ubiquitous, wouldn't we start with those chemicals that are that are persistent in the environment? Because they're going to be here forever. I mean, some, you know, like PFAS is called forever chemical. So, you know, even if we stopped tomorrow, there would be PFAS in our environment for, for future generations of humans and, and other living things to be exposed to. So would it make sense to start, you know, to working on those persistent chemicals like flame retardants and the PFAS chemicals and so on? Okay. So I wouldn't like to say 
Yeah, I would like to rank these as which is more important. I think they they have different harms and um, different scientists are working in different categories. I don't think we have to rank them. By the way, PFAS are persistent, but not nearly as persistent as some of the old chemicals that were grant. You know that were right. Uh, yeah, yeah, like the, PCBs the, and so on. PCBs and dioxin right. and DDT and so on. So those are the really long persistent chemicals. Um, the half-lives, I mean, one of the things that's encouraging about the non-persistent chemicals is that we can actually do something about that. We can get them out and we should get them out um, because the half-lives are in a matter of hours rather than um, years. So um, that's, you might say, maybe relatively lower hanging fruit, um, but um, I, I wouldn't want to say which ones we should do first. I think we have to attack these and also the ones we haven't even identified yet. We have to work on what is the mechanism by which we test chemicals before they're put into the marketplace and improve those tests. And that's going to be relevant to persistent and non-persistent. Right. We're talking about ramping up green chemistry facilities and uh, maybe in within academic institutions. I mean, this is really what needs to happen. Finding, you know, other non-toxic alternatives that have the same value to, a, you know, let's say a plastic bottle or, or whatever. Um, but let's just talk about regrettable substitutions. I mean, this is when you go into a store, you're unaware of anything except that BPA is bad and you see a, a sticker on on, uh, you know, on some toys or something that you're purchasing for a, a toddler and it says BPA free and you purchase it and then you feel good, right? You feel good that right. you've that you've avoided that exposure. But but in fact, it has BPS or BPF in it. So can you talk a little bit about regrettable substitutions? They're regrettable. <laughs> Other than that, I mean, aren't they? How is it? How can an industry or how can a chemical industry do that, knowing that the replacement chemicals are just as dangerous, if not more dangerous? Well, first of all, they might not know that, although they could test them. And that's the problem that the chemicals are not in this country. And we can talk about the EU. In this country, chemicals are not tested for safety before they're put into the market. It's unlike drugs. Think about the FDA. Think about the testing that's going on for the COVID-related drugs. We know now something about testing because everyone is aware of this, but people aren't aware that this doesn't happen with chemicals in our consumer products and in our chemicals that go into our foods and so on. So I think if we're not looking at this, why wouldn't a manufacturer who wants to look at his bottom line, I'm not saying this is right, but you know, I can understand, he would say, well, they don't like this one, but here's one that'll do the same thing. And it's got another name and I can say BPA free, but it's really BPS and then BPS. You see, if, if the only way you can tell if something is harmful, because it's not tested properly, is to put it out there and see what happens to people when they're exposed. <laughs> um, that takes a long time. And so you, they can get many years of use, if you will, out of these substitutes before it's discovered that they're maybe just as bad. So how does the EU deal with this and, and other countries? Yeah. So I think it's just the EU that's really made progress here, and, and that's limited. Um, they have a program called REACH, and under REACH, a chemical has to be 
proven to be safe before it's put into the marketplace. Makes total sense. And just to close with giving you an example, in the EU, there are 1,100 chemicals that are banned from personal care products. And in the US, there are 11. Mm. So it's possible to do better. Some places do better. Most of the world does not. And if we don't catch up soon, we're going to see continuing declines in sperm count and fertility, and we're going to have increasing challenges to reproduce our species and other species on the planet. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been Dr. Shanna Swan, author of the new book, Countdown, and professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. This is the point in our weekly show when Patty answers questions from listeners about environmental health concerns they have in their lives. This week, the question is about food storage. Maggie from Santa Monica writes, We do a lot of cooking in our house, and we always have leftovers. Most of the food storage containers I find in stores are made from plastic, and frankly, they smell bad. Is it safe to store food in plastic containers? And the answer is no. Okay. Why not? <laughs> so um, you can avoid plastics by, you know, using something as simple as a, just a, a ceramic bowl. You know, one of the bowls that you have and just put a, a plate on top of it. Okay. That's one of the simplest and, you know, easiest things to do. You know, just put something in the bowl, put a plate on top and stick it in the refrigerator. If you want something a little more, you know, lasting that's going to be in there for a while, you can certainly buy glass containers. The glass is, you know, more and more available today. The things that we use are glass containers with glass tops. You can also find glass containers with plastic tops. As long as the food is not touching the plastic lid or the plastic top, then you're okay. Um, you just don't want the food to be touching the plastic. Does the plastic <clears throat> chemicals leach into the food? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that we have all the recycling codes on most of our plastic things that we purchase today. Uh, and, you know, there are certain ones that we try to avoid. We try to avoid PVC. We try to avoid, you know, BPA, which is usually in, <clears throat> in that category seven or number seven. And so, and we try to avoid styrofoam, right? right. We, or styrene. So those are, those are things that we know about. But, you know, even plastics that we think are harmless, like number one, they're using chemicals in them that, you know, that they don't need to disclose. Like antimony, for instance, which is a metal, a uh, heavy metal, is found in, in one of the most commonly used plastic food storage, um, you know, containers. Uh, and so... It's just better not to use it. The other thing is that you can just wrap food in parchment paper, in wax paper. Um, they now have uh, fabric that's actually coated with beeswax hmm. that you can just wrap around a piece of cheese or wrap around something that's solid that you're putting away, a piece of meatloaf or whatever. But there's also cellulose. Cellulose looks like a plastic bag, but it's actually made from trees. So cellulose is becoming more and more available. People need to request it. People need to demand it. People need to say, I don't want to use plastic. What else do you got? Yeah. That's really, you know, this is, this is where your pocketbook matters. Um, what, you, what you buy is, uh, you know, is very important to those manufacturers. And if you just say, you know, I don't want this, you know, this packaging anymore. 
I want you to do better than this. I don't want to be putting my family's health at risk with, you know, with all this plastic and these plasticizing chemicals. And by the way, plastic breaks down when you use it over and over and over and you put it in, especially, you know, for food storage containers, you put it in the dishwasher, it gets scratched, it gets, you know, worn down. And as the plastic deteriorates or degrades like that, the plasticizing chemicals in that plastic will become, you know, more problematic because they can leach um, more of those chemicals into the food that you put in them. So, so uh, you know, glass, 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 stainless steel. You know, mm-hmm. we have stainless steel, you know, food containers, glass, stainless steel. I actually even save really good glass bottles, mm-hmm. you know, or nice wide glass storage bottles that, you know, you get marinara sauce in or something. Mayonnaise. Yeah, just reuse them. It's wonderful. It's yeah. just wonderful. We don't put anything in plastic. You don't need to do it. And you shouldn't do it, especially if, if you've got a young family and your kids are eating out of, you know, out of that. So yeah. there you go. All right. Great. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. If you have an environmental question for Patty, anything from cleaning products to water filters to air fresheners to dry cleaners, paint, carpeting, baby furniture, wireless radiation, whatever it might be, drop us a line at greenstreetradio.com. And if you missed any part of today's program, you can always catch it again on our website where you can submit your questions for Patty and also sign up for our newsletter. That's greenstreetradio.com. And in case you missed it last week, our guest was Kyla Bennett from the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility talking about protecting protecting whistleblowers at the EPA. Again, you can catch the show on GreenStreetRadio.com. That's going to do it for our show today. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. See you next time.